bound Through this veil of tears At times I've even questioned Even if my Lord was near Many times that old tempter Says why not turn around You can't get any farther You're just losing ground But I'm not giving up No, I'm not turning around By the grace of God I'll win a shining crown someday Tell me there's been something bothering me. Why is it that old devil just won't let God's children be? You see, he has purposed and determined to get right in the way and turn us from the way of life and lead our souls astray. You know, son, I'm not giving up No, I'm not turning round By the grace of God I will shine and crown Someday I'll keep holding on Holding on to that nail-scarred Welcome to Pilgrim's Progress, brought to you by the National Prayer Chapel in Woodbridge, Virginia, with Pastor Ray Greenlee. Today's sermon is pre-recorded. Don't quit. That's not the title. Let me give you the proper title. The proper title is, Blessed is the One Who Does Not Quit. Don't quit. Almighty God, King of all the earth, I need you. 
I need you to come in power and speak to our broken hearts. Or to our arrogant hearts. For we manage to have both. I step back, Lord. Come and speak to our hearts by your spirit and the blood of Jesus. Amen. John the Baptist was a classic Old Testament prophet. Jesus said that he was the greatest of all of the Old Testament prophets. His uniform was appropriate. Camel skin, eating locusts and wild honey, living in the desert. He never went to Jerusalem. Instead, he stayed out in the wilderness. And people hearing that an Old Testament prophet had shown up came in droves to hear what he had to say. It had been four years, it had been 400 years since one of these prophets of God had been seen. You understand, soon two of these prophets, probably dressed in camel skin, are going to show up in Jerusalem. And the whole world will come to hear what they have to say. Armies will try to shoot them. Police will try to destroy them. And they'll be guarded and fire will come from heaven and consume those who would try to oppose the word that will be given. The two witnesses are just about to show up in Jerusalem. He came preaching a message of repentance and obedience. He came with a hard edge. There was no softness about this man. He said, the axe is already at the root of the trees, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. That's as straight as it gets. Matthew, the third chapter. He then begins to speak about who the Messiah will be. He said, I baptize with water for repentance, but after me will come one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I am not fit to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand and he will clear his threshing floor, gathering his wheat into the barn and burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire. The picture is clear. Jesus is going to come with a a fork. He's going to scoop up his grain and slam it against the wall to separate it from its chaff. Does that sound like an exciting church to belong to? I told you he was straight and tough and hard-edged. Well, Jesus showed up. And what is the first thing John the Baptist has to say to the Messiah? You can't, you can't be baptized by me. The scriptures say in verse 14, but John tried to deter him. That is, he tried to oppose him. 
So now we have Jesus coming, the Son of God, the one his entire life had been prepared to welcome. And instead of welcoming Messiah, he says, you can't do what you want to do, Jesus. From the very beginning, Jesus did not please John the Baptist. I think he expected Jesus to show up in a camel hair outfit. I think he expected a firebrand to show up. Instead, when he looked at Jesus, there was nothing to impress him. There was no fire burning in his eyes. He was a man humble. No charismatic presence to draw men to himself. He didn't come walking out in camel hair saying, My beloved John, thank you for welcoming. Now everyone, listen to me. I am the Messiah. It's not what Jesus did. I mean, you would think he would have showed up and said, John, would you mind introducing me to your crowd? Okay, let's give Jesus a round of applause. This is the new Messiah. Didn't happen that way. Now, lest you think that they did not enjoy good drama in that day, the major attraction in Jerusalem that competed with the temple was the arena made of stone where they had all manner of plays, where they had all manner of entertainment. It's it's interesting to note that Jesus never said to the disciples, you know, we've been working hard. Hey, let's go to the theater tonight, guys. I mean, you would have thought that Jesus would have been, from John the Baptist's standard, a man with fire and passion who would come and straighten everybody out. It's not who Jesus was. That's not what he was about. And he was not there for show. He wasn't there as a spectacle. He came quiet and humble of heart. And the first thing his prophet does is try to say, you can't do that. Now, Jesus was very kind to John the Baptist. He did not say to him, get thou behind me, Satan. He reserved that for Peter. Peter was the other one who tried to argue with Jesus about how he was going to do things. Do any of you today find yourself in a place where you've been arguing with Jesus about how he's doing things? I have to tell you, I was in the prayer closet early this morning. And I was having a conversation with Jesus. You'll understand why I say a conversation when I share with you what happened. Some years ago, the Lord gave me a dream. And in that dream, I was sitting on a couch, downhearted. And I knew in the dream that Jan had died and we had just come from the funeral. And I was grieving. And the Lord came to me and said, now am I enough for you? And I said, yes, Lord. Now you are enough for me. And I said, Jesus, I need to just talk with you about this. Because 
the way you phrased the question in my dream that you gave me was with the word now, as though some things had gone on before this that I'm not privy to. But now I'm beginning to see. I know you're going to heal Jan. And I know at some point down the road, you're going to call her home. But now you're going to heal her. I said, Jesus, I have to be honest with you. I have to tell you, you are not enough for me. I need a flesh and blood wife who will walk beside me. Someone I can speak with, someone I can talk with. And so, no, you are not enough for me. But you could be enough for me. But it would require that you fill me with your Holy Spirit. And you come and take Jan's place. And you become one with me and I with you. And you talk to me. Jesus, I'm a son of Adam. I need someone to talk to me. I need that intimacy. That's part of how you created me. You made me a man who needed a helpmate, someone I could talk with, someone who would walk with me, someone who would be one with me. Now, I understand that's the relationship I'm supposed to have with you, but Jesus, I don't have that with you yet, so you're not enough yet. But I know it's not you. I know it's me. I know I'm not enough yet. And I repent of that. I repent that my hardness of heart keeps you at a distance so that I'm not safe for you to trust yourself with me yet. And that has to change. I have to change, Jesus. And by your blood, I'm asking, would you work that change in me? And if you do so quickly, it's okay if you take Jan home now. She's yours. I give her to you. But I'd rather have her walk with me a while yet. And I know she's going to. Intellectually, I can say you're enough, Jesus, but I haven't yet experienced it. I'm asking, can I experience this? Jesus, would you be enough for me, please? Would you be everything for me, Jesus? Now, I've made another agreement with Jesus. I said, I'm not going to argue with you about how you want to do things. You do things any way you want to do. I am going to be in submission to you. I'm the wife in this deal, Jesus. I'm not going to maintain my independence. I'm going to submit to you. I'm going to trust you. Now, you walk me down whatever road you need to walk me down, and you walk Pastor Jan down any road you need to walk her down, and you walk the National Prayer Chapel down any road you need to walk us down. But in the end, Jesus, could you be enough for us? Not just intellectually, but in our spirit, could you be enough for us? 
Could there be a satisfaction deep in our souls where we know your love and where that love flows out of us to other brothers and sisters? Well, the heaven was opened. And John the Baptist witnessed the Spirit of God descending like a dove. You notice the Spirit of God did not descend like an eagle. I have a dove that comes and visits me every morning. It's a little pet. It's a wild dove, but it's my pet. I rescued it when it was just a baby. I held it in my hands. I took it outside and I freely released it into the air. I walked back to the house and it followed me back to the house. I feed this little dove every day. She flies in on dove's wings. I've never seen my dove fly in on eagle's wings. She flies in gently. She lands And she says, where's my breakfast, Ray? Oh, I'm sorry, I forgot. And I go to the cupboard and she watches me. She cocks her head and watches me right inches from the door. And she watches me go and scoop up her food. I bring it out. I gently open the door so as not to frighten her. You see, if I'm an eagle, she flies away. I walk out and I gently put the food into her tray. She has her own breakfast dish. And then I go inside and I stand and watch with joy as my little bird goes and begins to feast on her favorite food, sunflower kernels. The Holy Spirit did not come like a crow or like a vulture. Or like an eagle, the Holy Spirit came like a dove, shy, timid, gentle, a dove. My dove always tries to win my heart. My dove never demands. My dove does not make any raucous noise when I don't have food out for her. I have to consciously see her flying in and sitting at my door. The Holy Spirit never comes raucously demanding your attention. The Holy Spirit comes gently and lights on you. That's how the Holy Spirit came to Jesus. And a voice from heaven said, this is my son whom I love, and with him I'm well pleased. John the Baptist did not have the voice of God say to him, this is my prophet, I am well pleased with him. Didn't happen that way. You see, John the Baptist represented a whole system of theology that was a pictorial 
symbolic image of what the gospel was going to be about. Type and antitype. In chapter 11 in the book of, of Matthew, Jesus hears that, that John is imprisoned. And by the way, he was imprisoned for beginning to get away from righteousness in the private sector, and he went to righteousness in the political sector. I wonder what will happen to those Christians who think everything has to be solved politically. I suspect at one point they'll go to jail too. We're not interested in the politics of the matter. We're interested in the morality of the matter, in our hearts and lives. A changed people will change the politic. John is in prison, and he sends a message to Jesus. Now, can you imagine what those messages could possibly have been that John could have sent to Jesus? Jesus, my cousin, the son of the living God, I spent my life preparing for you, and I'm so proud of you. I'm so pleased with you. You have been righteous in all that you've done. It's been a privilege to be in prison. It's been a privilege to serve you. That's not what John said. He could have said to Jesus, you are the Lamb of God, I trust you. You do all things well, but I don't understand what you're doing, but you do all things well, and I trust you. You are God. He could have said that. He had adequate evidence to say that. But true to his Old Testament nature, Matthew 11, the second verse, part B, are you the one who was to come or should we expect someone else? Jesus is still not matching up to John's Old Testament expectations. He has heard that Jesus has created wine. And a Nazarite would never touch wine. He's heard that Jesus is actually fellowshipping with the publicans and the tax collectors. He has actually heard also that Jesus has broken the Sabbath by healing people. He's also heard that Jesus wears a seamless garment made of very expensive linen. That money should have been given to the poor, Jesus. He was simply not what Je- Jesus was simply not what John expected. And it makes me pause once more and ask the question. As you have walked in the National Prayer Chapel and the word of God has been lifted up before you, is this what you expected? What was it that you expected of Jesus? He's not the charismatic entrepreneur. He's not 
the handsome guy that everybody falls in love with. He's not the Old Testament prophet that condemns people for their sin. He's not permissive. He doesn't have greasy grace. What did you expect from Jesus? What did you expect when you became a Christian? Have you been disappointed by Jesus? If you could speak right now to Jesus and know that he was in front of you and was hearing everything you had to say, what would you say to him about how your life has been? Would you say, Jesus, I am disappointed in what you've done in my life? Or are you pleased with who Jesus is? Are you pleased with what he's done in your life? Or do you want to quit? She's saying the right word. Jesus. If the children remain quiet, the stones will cry out his name. Don't tell her, shh. Let her cry out the name of Jesus. What a blessing. Yes. Jesus. Any of you want to cry out like a child, Jesus? Except you become as little children, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. Jesus. And Jesus says in verse 6, Blessed is the man who does not fall away on my account. And then he speaks specifically about this issue in one of his parables. In the eighth chapter of Luke, he's telling a story about a, a farmer who goes out and sows in a field. And he's describing the different kinds of soils. And he's saying that these are different kinds of Christians. This is how we respond differently to his word when it comes forth. And of course, the first one was the trampled down soil that the devil comes and steals the word away. That's because we've walked so long in that way. Our hearts have become so hardened in our opinions that there's no room for the word of God in us. And so the devil just comes and takes the word that's preached and carries it away because you're not going to change anyway. You've already set your course. You're on your way. And hell is your destination. But then there is a second kind of soil. In verse 13, those on the rock are the ones who receive the word with joy when they hear it, but they have no root. They believe for a while, but in the time of testing, they fall away. These are Christians who hold on to darling sins, the besetting sins. They're impatient with the Holy Spirit. They want to repent and then have the freedom to go back and live in their sin. They want to say, I'm sorry, and cry crocodile tears, and then go back and have their sin once more. These are people who finally say, I quit, it's too hard, it's too tough. 
how many times I've seen brothers and sisters come into this house and say to me, Pastor, the messages are wonderful. I enjoy your messages. They cut me, but I love hearing the straight word of God. And then a year later, they decide they don't quite like that straight word of God because it's finally cutting right at the root of that wickedness that's in their heart. And they finally recognize they either have to leave it or leave here. And many have chosen to leave. Because the Holy Spirit comes like a gentle dove and begins to uncover and expose and call forth and say, will you let me have it? And this last week I was listening to a national pastor as he was preaching. And this pastor began to say, what happens when you have wicked thoughts come into your mind? What happens when you want to open that computer and go to pornography? Or what happens when you want that cigarette? How do you deal with that? And his answer for that was you just cut it off and say, I don't want you anymore, leave. Well, I said to him, and he didn't hear me, but I said to him, what if it doesn't leave? What if I say to my sin, leave, and it doesn't go? What if I see the pain and anguish that my sin is causing my family, but I can't leave it? I see the pain my anger is causing, but I can't leave it. It's a part of me. How can a man leave himself? Can a man leave himself? When something is woven into the very depths of a man's soul, when his identity is around that wickedness that is birthed in his soul, can he just walk away from that thing? No. The chains bind him tight. And some of you grow impatient with a husband or a wife or a family member. Just say no. Stop it. It's not that easy. This pastor could say that because he believes that in the midst of your sin, you're still saved. And so all you're going to miss out on are a little reward in heaven. You know, you might lose, you might be downgraded two levels on the house you live in. Or you might have a crown that's a little lighter in gold. I mean, that's all you're going to lose to this man. But, but we know that's not true. We know that sin will keep you from this word that sin will keep you from Jesus, that sin will block you from the presence and power of the Holy Ghost in your heart. We know that you will be lost if you continue to walk in open and known rebellion against the Almighty. You can't enter into the kingdom of God. No unclean thing can enter into Jesus Christ. You can't be in Jesus and in sin at the same time. That's an oxymoron. It's impossible. So let's say today that you're in charge of your life. And some of you I could identify right now and say specifically how I know you're in charge still of your life. And let's say you want to entertain with me just for a moment the possibility that you would give up the control of your life. How do you do that? How do you walk away from your sins? How do you say no And have it stick. Galatians, the second chapter, verse 17. If while we seek to be made righteous in Christ, 
you may have there in your Bible translated justified, but in the Greek, it's dikisune, meaning made righteous, not justified. The word justified is used here by the theological belief of the translators who want to say it's declared righteousness, not real righteousness. Galatians, the second chapter, verse 17. If while we seek to be made righteous in Christ, it becomes evident that we ourselves are sinners, does that mean that Christ promotes sin? Absolutely not. If I rebuild what I destroyed, wait a minute. He's saying he destroyed that sin. So the question is, how did he destroy that sin? If I rebuild what I destroyed, I prove that I'm a lawbreaker. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live for God. So there's something that has to happen through the law, through the Old Testament. In other words, we have to hear John the Baptist condemning us. We have to hear John the Baptist saying, what you're doing is sin. Most of us would say, okay, come on, I already know it's sin. Tell me something I don't know. All right? Paul says, I've been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. That being crucified with Christ is why sometimes we want to quit. Crucifixion is a very, very painful process. And it's something that every natural person runs from. Now explain for me, please, how am I to be crucified? Paul says, the life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me, not who condemned me, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. So let's break it down. The way I deal with my sin is to bring that sin honestly before the throne of God. And I ask by the power of the blood of Jesus that that sin be removed from my heart. That attitude, I ask Jesus, please remove that attitude from my heart. That passion for lust or for control or for independence. I go before Jesus and I say, Jesus, You see the damage this is doing to my heart. You see the damage it's doing to my wife or my husband. You see the damage it's doing at work where I'm proud and self-centered and arrogant and always doing my own deal and being independent. And you see the damage I'm doing. Jesus, would you remove this from my heart? Would you rain down righteousness on me? Would you give me a new heart? This is not self-help 101. The gospel is not about legalism. It's about grace. Grace teaches me to say no to unrighteousness. But then it's grace that removes that unrighteousness from my life. 
and says, be clean in the name of Jesus. Be clean in the name of Jesus. And he changes. And I just bear testimony today. Constantly as I grow in Jesus. I'll give you a very concrete example. When everything physically looks like Jan is dying. I become very practical and say, shouldn't I begin trying to save some money for a funeral? I mean, how am I going to pay for a funeral? Shouldn't I begin to save some money and put it away for a funeral? Well, I've never put money away and saved it. I've always trusted Jesus. Now, saving money is a wonderful thing, but in my position, it's not a wonderful thing because the Lord hasn't told me to save money. He said, will you receive only from my hand what I choose to give you? So I don't try to hoard the money of God so that I can do something with it. I do with it what he tells me to do with it. But now if my wife's going to die, don't I need to be able, like Abraham, to go to the Hittites and say, can I have the cave? Well, is in my heart, do I believe she's going to die? Or do I believe she's going to live? And so I had this conversation with Jan. I said, Jan, the two of us have always been honest and open about everything. We need to have a conversation. Do you believe you're going to die? And if so, we have to start saving money for your funeral. But if you believe you're going to live, then we're going to just trust the Lord. And we're going to do exactly what he tells us to do. Well, she said, we're going to trust the Lord. Don't you dare save any money for my funeral. The Lord said I'd live and not die. And when it comes time for me to die or you to die, the Lord will provide the funeral he wants. Well, you see, there's only one way I can get to that place of faith. Jesus, take the unbelief out of my heart and replace it with faith. Faith is a gift that comes from God. Righteousness is a gift that comes from God. Hope is a gift that comes from God. If today you're hopeless in your spirit, ask him for hope and he will give to you the gift of hope. If your heart is filled with bitterness, ask him to remove the bitterness from your heart and he'll remove it. Remember, the Holy Spirit comes to teach us about Jesus. And he comes as a dove. He comes gently. He loves us. Today, whatever the issue of pain is in your spirit, in your heart, whether it be physical pain, emotional pain, financial pain, if you're willing to go to Jesus and lay it out before him, He'll handle it. But the way he'll handle it will be to grow you up in Jesus. And it may be very painful the way he does it. And his word to you is don't fall away on account of how I deal with you. Now I have to tell you, Jan's sickness has been excruciatingly painful for us. The most painful thing we've ever had to deal with. There are many other painful things that we have to deal with. 
waiting upon him for the fullness of the Holy Spirit has been the most painful struggle of my entire life. The silence of God. I can't deal with it. But I know the silence of God was meant by Jesus to draw me closer to him, not to push me away from him, not for me to say, okay, I quit. If you're going to treat me that way, I'm out of here. No, he's saying to us today, don't get mad at how I deal with you and quit. Trust me. Ask me. I'll carry you through. Now, some people are saying, if that's the case, I think I'll just handle it myself. You can do that for a while. But the day will come when your heart will be so lonely for God and you'll be so far away from him, you may not be able to get to him soon enough. Today, I don't want to argue with Jesus about how he's dealing with my family. I don't want to argue with Jesus about how he's handling finances. I don't want to argue with Jesus about what he's doing in your lives. I want to say, Jesus, however you need to do the surgery, please just do it. I trust you. I'm going to follow you. I'm not going to get mad and quit. I'm going to seek after you with all of my heart until I find you. I'm not going to quit, Jesus. You're enough. Lord, I know that this bread symbolizes your crucified body, broken and bruised, and that by your stripes I'm healed. I recognize, Jesus, it was not easy for you. It was painful and hard to the point of death. And then you were stretched out on that cross and your blood was shed. And your side was pierced and your blood flowed freely for me and for each in this house. Lord, today we consecrate not this bread and this wine for it, symbolizes your blood and your bread, and that's already your body. It's already consecrated. Lord, we consecrate ourselves and say we're not going to quit. And we're not going to argue with you about how you want to do things. And we ask that you be enough for us. We ask that you speak with us that you carry us. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you for your kindness and your mercy.
Thank you so much for joining us. You've been listening to Pilgrim's Progress, brought to you by the National Prayer Chapel in Woodbridge, Virginia. Come join us at nationalprayerchapel.com. Now unto him who is able to keep you from falling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy with great joy now unto him who is able to keep you from falling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great Presence of His glory with great joy.